Good morning. This is Dr. Tom Rogers at Performance Medicine bringing you the weekly podcast and doctor's note. We've got a great one today because I have a special guest. We're going to learn all about the COVID-19 straight from an ER doc that's been serving in New York City at the epicenter of the uh, the viral outbreak. Um, Dr. Brock Blankenship. He's an emergency room doctor in Abington, Virginia. And he's also a professor of emergency room medicine at ETSU School of Medicine, where I went 38 years ago. And he's also done some cool stuff with working with the State Department. He's worked in Afghanistan. Um, he's worked in many other countries probably stuff he can't tell you about, but um, he also works for the volunteer disaster team, and that's the team he went up with uh, to New York City. He actually worked in Central Park, if you saw on the news where they set up all the tents, worked uh, with Mount Sinai Hospital, and so he's been a friend for a while, and I wanted to make sure that um, we got to interview him after his experience. So he just came back last week, and I'm, I'm just so excited to hear about your experience up there and what we can learn down here where it hasn't hit uh, nearly as bad. I'm just really excited about hearing from your experience over there, Brock. Now, tell me, what was it like in general? Um, so in general, and, and, you know, I think we all look at things and base them off of, uh, you know, our, our, our past and, and where we've been, you know, from a disaster standpoint, um, you know, the accommodations were phenomenal, um, which weren't so much with other disaster deployments. The, um, you know, I mean, it, New York City is a beautiful place to, to go and to, to volunteer. Um, and most of my disaster deployments have all been overseas or um, in the Caribbean or Central or South America. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was it was like every other disaster where kind of moments of chaos, um, you know, followed by moments of, of calm. Um, and, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it was, it was great. It was rewarding. Um, the, I, I got there a little bit later to the punch than I did on some of my prior deployments. Um, you know, everybody thought with, you know, New York city getting 300,000 cases, um, you know, that, that, you know, the cases would just keep climbing and climbing and climbing, especially, um, because these, you know, patients don't just turn the corner in a short period of time. Um, but they, uh, um, you know, really the cases fell off, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, way earlier than people expected. So it's gotten a lot better. Um, uh, but it was, uh, it, it was an interesting deployment nonetheless. Um, this is, this is really my first disaster deployment for infectious disease, um, the company that I went with was um, Samaritan's Purse, and they've done Ebola response um, several times. And um, it's not a deployment that I've been on, but they're they're they they really know what they're doing when it comes to trying to keep their providers from getting um, sick or injured while they're on deployment. So hope that answers the question in a long way. Yeah, that was great. I I can imagine the you know New York. It's like a movie film. It had to be with the empty streets and people in lines and everything. Yes, um, very surreal. Let me ask um, you: um, Who are the people that are the most vulnerable to this disease that, that you saw coming in? What were they like, or demographic wise? So there's kind of um, you know I mean I guess I see 
I, I really kind of focused on on or, and looked at two demographics. So one is the um, and and one's more scary to me than the other. Uh, one was the the chronically ill person who had you know lung disease, was smoker, diabetics, um, you know uh, more of the, the extremes of uh, overweight. Um, those were those are definitely the highest risk patients, and those are the ones that are having the worst outcomes. And then there's a kind of a subgroup of patients that are kind of the, you know, um, the, the, the really um, unfortunate, like 30 to 40 to, you know, 50 year old who has minimal risk factors. And, you know, they would have almost like two different presentations. The, the older person would be the typical coronavirus, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, fever, cough, respiratory distress and, you know, and, and you know, the, the bad thing is when those people go on to um, get like on the ventilator, um, their survival rate uh, is very, very low. Um, I mean, really, the literature quotes a, a, a 12 percent survival rate in those in those people who have to get intubated um, and, and really of all comers. But then with this other group, this 30, 40, 50 year old who may present with the silent hypoxia where their oxygen, they're walking around their oxygen levels low. They don't really know it. They may feel a little bit fatigued, but. They don't really realize what's going on. Um, those people, a lot of times, are are having like kind of thromboembolic events, or they're having blood clots in their lungs, and um, and and so those are the ones that are kind of scarier because they're not the typical, and they 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 show up and they look good. Um, they're not having air hunger, they're not having anything else, which their oxygen levels low, and it's coronavirus driving um, blood clots and or some of the other you know, process that happens with the lungs with coronavirus. You know, this is interesting because it's really not typical. From what I hear, it's not really the typical pneumonias that's killing these people. Isn't it like a an inflammatory cytokine storm type thing that, that really is the problem? Yes. Yes. Well, and it seems to be almost like it's two problems. And I, I hate to sound like there's so much uncertainty with this, but it, it just seems like there really is. And, you know, like a lot of it, you know, we're, we're not figuring it, you know, we had, don't have it figured out yet. And, and you know, even when you talk to the people that are, I mean, all the people that are been at the epicenter, been working at it since day one, they're like, golly, they're still throwing us so many curveballs. And, um, the, and, and we just don't, you know, we just don't have it completely figured out, but, but you're right. So the, the worst time, the highest, like when patients crash is around this day 10, day 11 mark when they have this cytokine storm, and and they have this just huge it's almost like their body is you know allergic to itself at that point and it just amounts to some huge inflammatory response and 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 they you know get super sick and 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 that's that's like the highest risk time but um you know a lot of the patients that are two weeks or so out you know they're really susceptible to um to bacterial pneumonia so they get like a bacterial infection on top of the coronavirus and it's the bacterial pneumonia that kills them but you know coronavirus set them up to um to kind of get that um and then and then some of them you know it's kind of like even when they're they're a month out you know they just get like so much kind of scarring and damage and and um to their to their lungs that you know they become where they require oxygen kind of you know, long term, I mean, it's, it's the baby steps, um, to, to get back, um, you know, and there'll be months, you know, before they'll be able to walk up a flight of stairs without, you know, having to stop or, or get so winded that they can't, you know, hardly make it to the top. Wow. It seems like that, um, 
you know, there's there's different thoughts about which medicines work, like the remdesivir. I'm sure you probably saw a lot of that. I don't know yes. what's happened with the hydroxychloroquine, if that's kind of fallen off the map. Um, I know we've got the brightest minds in the world working on this right now as far as convalescent serum and all these different treatments you hear IV vitamin C may help. What is there a protocol that everybody gets now? Has it changed? It, so, what do you see working? Um, up until about a week and a half ago, everybody was getting the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And, um, uh, you know, I, I hate it for patients right now as much as I hate it for providers because they, I mean, really, it's almost like, and I don't know if it's the people throwing their political spin on things or people just, you know, wanting to blame somebody or look for, I mean, and it's just the in the medical community trying to search so hard for, like, the answer. But, you know, you hear all the conflicting um you know, information and, and people are really kind of like, well, I don't know what to do. So I'm either going to be, you know, paralysis, you know, by analysis where they just do nothing or they, um, you know, or they, you know, live in, in fear because there's these unknowns. But um, I think right now what they're saying is the remdesivir has the most promise. Now, up until just like last week, it has been, um, you know, only been available in clinical trials, um, and it's, from what I understand, pretty quite expensive. Um, you know, the the hydroxychloroquine um, and azithro. If I were, um, I mean, it's it's funny because they they say that the azithromycin not just as an antibiotic, but it's actually, you know, it has some immunomodulatory uh, effects where it actually like you know, mod, you know modifies your immune system a little bit and may make you a little less. Um, um, you know, likely to have a, a, a more severe case. And there was recently, like, even though it started getting a bad rap two and a half, three weeks ago, after the VA released a study, there was a small non-published study, non-peer-reviewed, and they took the sickest of the patients and they gave them hydroxychloroquine and they said, oh, it didn't really seem to help. And, you know, I don't, I mean, it's really not the uh, way to do a study where you take the the people have the highest mortality anyways. And then you say, we're going to give it to some of you and see how you do. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's still potentially some promise with hydroxychloroquine as a prophylaxis where you take it to prevent infection, like you do with malaria. And, and I personally, um, you know, if, if I tested positive right now and started having significant symptoms, um, I, I think that the, the benefit outweighs the risk. I mean, people have been using hydroxychloroquine for, for decades and, you know, with, with a low concern for, you know, QT prolongation and the, and the EKG changes, um, and, and, and really, you know, of course, a high benefit with malaria, but, um, I don't know. I think right now it looks like, uh, the remdesivir is probably the most promising treatment. Um, it, but, but you're right. There's still, um, very little, um, you know, treatment options. And, and, and that's why, you know, as the as as the states get back going again, you know, I'm a, I'm a I think we almost have to open things up because of the economy, um, and and I mean even to save healthcare. I mean right now, you know, people are scared to go to the hospital and people can't get their elective, you know, knee surgery so they can get back and run again, or their elective, you know, or semi-elective gallbladder surgery so they can live without pain and eat, and and um, you know, I, I think we've got to get the country back open, but. If you're one of those high-risk individuals, um, you, you really need to
need to proceed with caution. I agree with um, you 100%. If I came down with it or symptoms and uh, got sick, maybe tested positive, I would definitely put myself on azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. You yeah. know, there's just so and, many and, good things that you see about it. And um, my dad was an old-timey physician, and he, he told me something I'll always remember, and that was when you're not sure about something, what to do? He goes, do something. And I think that's yeah. doing something with very little risk. It's been yes, overplayed yeah. with the media. I think it's turned political with that. Of course, if you could get the remdesivir, you would do it. But that's expensive. I think it's IV. You're going to have to be in a hospital. You know, what you want to do is not go in the hospital with this thing. Is that right? And it- Yes, well, 100%. And, and, you know, the hospitals have gotten smarter um, with their, um, you know, treatment protocols and stuff like that, too. I think you could probably – you know, go in the hospital now safer than what you could have um, two weeks ago and get, you know, appropriate treatment. But I think it's the, the remdesivir is probably for the person who has to get hospitalized, who's on, you know, two to four liters of oxygen, trying not to get to, you know, six, eight, 10 liters of oxygen and then intubated. And so, you know, and, and we, we don't know. I mean, if you went on it early, you may be, you know, if it, if it, if you did, fail treatment, you know, then it may not help you when you get to that latter stage when you really need it. Um, I am still a fan of the the vitamin C and, and I'll tell you, I, I really um, was, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I got lucky. The hotel I was staying in, they had in the lobby, they were giving away these free um, elderberry shots and they tasted <laughs> horrible, but it was one of these things that, you know, but it was like in the morning, it was just so bitter, but you know, I, I did an elderberry shot twice a day when I was going in and out of the hotel. Um, and, and, you know, with our prior deployments, we were um, we were staying in the tents, you know, same tents we worked in. We would stay in as well. And, and staying on a cot is uh, not nearly as comfortable as the hotel I was staying in, which just happened to be. I think they donated the rooms, but it was the Algonquin, which is like the oldest hotel in New York City, like 1902, um, right outside of Times Square. So it was like, this is great, you know, from a hotel standpoint. But anyways, they had elderberry shots. So I did the elderberry, I did zinc, I did vitamin C, um, and, you know, I, I, I took uh, um, vitamin D as well. But I think um, the zinc, the elderberry, and vitamin C are, you know, the best things I could do to prepare my immune system for the, you know, what if, you know, I, I you know, got exposed to some of the virus. Um, you know, we all know that. You know, with any infection, there's kind of a, a kind of a minimum amount needed to inoculate you. So if just one of those viruses hits any of our nasal passage or our mouth, we're we're unlikely to get infected by it. But there's a certain number of those, and and I think that the the, the elderberry, the vitamin C, and the zinc kind of helps it increase that 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 dose that's required to get you infected, and so um, and then prepares your immune system for if you do get infected as well. I agree 100%. Of course, I'm a huge vitamin fan. Been on high dose of vitamin D and C. I doubled my doses about two months ago. And, yeah. you know, of course, for years we've given IV vitamin C in our offices. And, you know, a lot of stuff is off label, but I've never seen anything turn around things more than, than a good dose of intravenous vitamin C. I think I would beg for that if I had to go to the hospital, if they would give it to me. Um, you know, it works as a great anti-inflammatory um, thing for almost everything. And as a matter of fact, it's been proven to work for bacteremia, septic shock. 
So yes. definitely vitamin C intravenously is a, is a great thing to, to you get. know, we used to use it for, you know, renal, basically to try to prevent renal failure in patients that got, you know, IV contrast, you know, for a CT scan. If they already had some renal dysfunction, we'd use it for its, um, you know, basically just its its ability, its antioxidant properties that, um, you know, kind of clean up and scavenge all those free radicals. And and um, I, I agree with you completely. Um, I think uh, vitamin C is way understudied and way under um, you know, recommended and, and probably because it's not a, a one of the big pharma drugs, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they can charge uh, an arm and a leg for. I know it's so, cheap. Um, it's dirt cheap. Yeah. You know, I guess Linus Pauling knew what he was talking about. Um, I also saw a report a couple of days ago that when they measured the vitamin D levels at baseline when these patients came in, the ones that had a good high vitamin D level did a lot better than the ones that had a low vitamin D level, which is almost everybody if you're not taking supplemental vitamin D. Um, So that's definitely... I can can believe that. I took vitamin D as well. I think, I mean, if I had to recommend a cocktail, um, it would be like the the very next, you know, vitamin supplement. And it's what I took. So, um, but it's, it's one that I know um, we're all kind of deficient in. And, And, you know, I think that's the... You know, if you came in and, and if you're a diabetic and, and you come in with coronavirus and your sugars are well controlled and you have a good diet and you're exercising and you're doing stuff right to take care of your body, I think you still fall in that lower risk category almost. And we still treat it like a higher risk category because you have the diabetes. But different than if you're a diabetic and you're overweight and you don't eat well and your sugars are normally 250, you know, it's like those people have a bad outcome. And it's, I think, so the best thing we can do instead of, you know, watching, flipping back and forth between Fox and CNN just to try to make you panic, um, I think the best thing you can do is prepare yourself for a good outcome if and when you get it, if we're going to be just kind of free-flowing back and trying to do everything that, um, you know, that we that we do. And, and, you know, like, so I'm on the backside of New York right now, so, you know, I don't go around my family right now without even wearing a mask. So I, 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 and I, and we can talk more if you want to about the mixed signals from the surgeon general and the CDC on, on do you wear a mask and do mask help? <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, what I've, do you think? Uh, so, well, and, and, you know, we're, we're basically, when we leave out for this infectious disease deployment, we basically say on the tail end of this, we've got a quarantine for two weeks. And, and I mean, I do, um, I mean, it, it. I think it's ridiculous when when you know people say that that masks don't help. And I mean, there's there's literature to say that if I had the flu and I've got I've got five members in my household, if I have the flu and everybody wore a mask in the house, the the risk of me spreading to somebody else goes down by like you know 300 percent, you know. And but if nobody's wearing a mask, um, then you know the risk is very likely that I'll I'll get at least two of the three of those people infected. Um, I think, you know, it's funny if you read the Surgeon General's comments, and of course we're only seeing the little soundbite, what he says is that if you don't know how to take it off and put it on right, and then you're going to, you know, expose yourself to increased risk of infection. And, and, you know, I I saw uh, there's one of the guys who I, one of the volunteers who's helping us in New York, and, you know, I noticed that his his mask was kind of, I mean, it's like he needed to retire this thing like three days prior. And I'm like, now that's probably not ideal, but you know, if you're, 
if you are not infected and you're not hanging out around people who are known to be infected, you know, you can reuse these masks and you can reuse them smartly. And if the mask is sold or if it's been heavily contaminated around people who are infected, then it needs to be discarded. But, you know, we wouldn't dream of going into our coronavirus wards or the ICU or our step down area without a mask on. You know, you wouldn't dream that you, you would 100 percent get infected. And so to say that it's not needed when, you know, people are out and, and you know, if people aren't social. Now, I do think social distancing is more key. And I think that's why we haven't seen a lot more cities pop up with as big hotspots. But um, the Surgeon General saying, if you don't know how to wear a mask properly, you shouldn't wear it. It's almost like saying you shouldn't exercise because you may hurt yourself exercising. <laughs> That's a, you know, that's a great correlation. I know I've changed my opinion on using a mask 100% since this thing has developed. I know when I go to the grocery store or out or with patients, I'm wearing a mask. And I also wear my glasses because I think a lot of it could get yes. in your eyes. So yes. I've always been a hand cleaner and Purell and all this. But the, you're yeah. right about the mask. I think that's one reason that... You know, we haven't had it so bad around here. People are really kind of taking responsibility uh, around, I think. You know, at some point, I guess we're going to have to develop, because we have to reopen the economy. We're going to yeah. have to develop some kind of herd immunity, I guess, on this thing. But I would think, and tell me what you think, that the most vulnerable people still need to stay inside and not get around people for everybody 100%. else they need to kind of take the precautions and get out get sunlight start exercising and kind of getting somewhat back to normal because we can't remain that paranoid about this um i, 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 I go yeah, ahead i agree 100 percent. i think we've got it and, and i think we all have to look at just like how the state should be looking at you know atlanta's different than you know rural you know, Georgia and, and the, you know, and the, and the Appalachia you know, region, you know, just like we're different than Richmond and, and Roanoke and even you know, DC Fredericksburg area. Um, you know, you also have to look at your individual exposure. I mean, if you're a healthcare worker and you have a high risk person in the home, you probably, if you're around coronavirus patients and if you're, you know, ex ex in the emergency department setting where you could be exposed to it and not even know it. Um, I was talking to a colleague and, and this was, this, he was telling me this was like a couple of weeks ago. He's like, well, I don't, I haven't seen any coronavirus patients yet. And, and one of the other colleagues is, says, oh yeah, you have, <laughs> you just didn't know it. It's seen, and it it's was seen you. Patient. You haven't seen it, but it's seen you. That's what, yes. Yeah. yeah. It was a patient who tested positive later. Like you saw him on, on one day and, and, and they went out with a negative test or whatever. And then, you know, the next day they, they turned positive, you know, and, you know, our, our, our treatment protocols now are, are two of the tests instead of just one to try to be closer to ensuring that somebody definitely doesn't have infection if they're a high risk individual or have high risk family members. But if I'm, you know, if you're if you're a, a, a low risk person who who's social distancing and being smart about, you know, you know, your hand hygiene and, and, and even if you're, you know, you, you, you know, the mask isn't as essential for you, but um you know, and it does make sense that people who are familiar with, with wearing masks, they watch a short video on how to take it off and how to put it on and stuff like that. But you know, just like myself right now, I'm high risk because I came back from that area last week. Um, you know, I, I uh, um, you know, I, I basically it would be it would be irresponsible for me not to wear a mask around my family, not because any of them are likely to have a bad course. I mean, it's my wife who's O positive, which seems to be a little bit protective. Females have a little better course. The children typically have a, a, a you know very benign course, 
but because of who they're going to give it to when they're, you know, going to the grocery store or, or something like that. I know a lot of docs uh, around here that are working in hospitals, anesthesiologists, et cetera, hospitalists and pulmonary docs, they're actually staying in their garages so they don't yeah. uh, infect their family, even though there's very little of it around here. You know, the ant- we'll talk about testing just a minute. We're doing the antibody test in our office through Quest Labs. I've probably run 50 in the last uh, week or two. Knock on wood, every one of them is negative. I was kind of hoping I'd see some positive, so see some immunity out there. But what what are your recommendations on testing? Is the antigen or the part that tells you if you have the acute illness becomes more available? What would what would you recommend that the general public do if they get sick? Try to get the antigen test. If they think they've been sick, get the antibody test. What would you do? Well, you know, and it's it's. Um, I mean, I think right now. I think the best test is like, is like, um, I mean, it's, it's right around, you know, 80% um, sensitive, meaning that if you have the illness that it's going to tell you, you definitely have it. You know, the problem is, is that I think the best test right now has close to a 20% false negative rate. So if you go and you think you're exposed and you got tested um, and, um, you're, you're, I'll make a plug for something that you told me about uh, here in a second. But if you got tested and your test says that it's negative, then then now you you go about life as normal. But you know, two two out of ten to three out of ten of those people are actually still going to maintain um, infection. So so the funny thing is, um, and here's the um, you told me well actually you told my wife about the aura ring. Um, uh-huh. and uh, you know I'm like ah aura ring whatever. Well my wife loved it. And then, so I ended up getting myself one probably a month before going and I think focusing on sleep. And I think it's why a lot of our healthcare workers are having bad courses because they're, you know, the ones that are working, especially working doing coronavirus treatment, they're, you know, they're exhausted, their immune system's kind of taking a hit from lack of sleep and stuff like that. So, um, and this gets back to our testing question. So a week before um, the, uh, a week before I went to New York, I ran, a, a fever for like two nights and um i haven't had a fever in five years but i thought you know what it'd be responsible for me to go to new york and everything um uh you know sick already so i went got my coronavirus test it came back negative i felt comfortable of course i flew with you know the whole time i flew i wore a mask the whole time i'm around everybody up there i wore a mask i'm wearing a mask back here i'm doing everything to try to prevent but you know now the standard that has changed over that short period of time is that well now you need two tests and, you know, the thing is, is if somebody gets a negative test, they should know that that it's still it's not 100 percent. It doesn't mean you don't have it. It means the chances are lower that you have it. Um, and, and a lot of the test does come down to, um, you know, if, if the, the nurse isn't tickling your brain, I mean, if it's not like very uncomfortable and, and people like in the White House are getting tested daily. I don't know how they've uh, survived it because uh, most people are, it's, it's not, if it's a comfortable test, they didn't get back far enough. I agree a hundred percent. I've seen, I've talked to some people who had the test where they left the swab in about five seconds, didn't put it way back. I know when we check in our office, the flu test, the flu swab, which is the same basic thing, uh-huh. it's painful. People, I mean, they yes. cry almost over it. It's, yes. it's a very yes. painful test. Yeah, when I saw that about the daily testing at the White House, I'm going, they're not getting that test every day. There's nobody in the world that would want that. No, no, day. they'd be like calling in sick just so they could get a day off of the test. But, uh, 
Well, this yeah, is- so so I hope that, that helps. I mean, I, I really, I know you're talking about the, you know, kind of witch test. I think, I think we're still, you know, a couple months away from like the perfect test. And, um, you know, and, and so, I mean, I've even seen some ER doctors, I mean, they're, they're pushing that, you know, the ER does not maintain, especially the rapid test. And, um, I mean, it's only for like patients that need to be hospitalized and stuff like that. And, and I don't know if they're doing that more to try to keep the flow of those patients going through the drive-through clinics and the outpatient setting. Um, so that way you don't have people just coming in, um, who, who don't need hospitalization and people who are going to go home anyways, just to come in to get tested and expose, um, more people who are showing up with their, you know, immune compromised state or their, their, um, you know, they're showing up with other illnesses and now they're picking up coronavirus in the waiting rooms. So, um, I, um, I, I think that, I think, I mean, right now, if I, I mean, if I spiked a fever today and, and so the great thing about the aura ring is that, you know, everybody, so we have to do two week temperature logs. So I'm, I'm, you know, five days into my 14 day daily temperature log. I'm like, well, I'm checking mine when I go to sleep. I'm checking it when I wake up because this aura ring tracks my temperature all the way through the night. Yeah. And, you know, it tells me if I'm, you know, there should be a, a mild variation, but it shouldn't be to the point where you're running a fever. So um, I, I've recommended it to probably a half dozen people and there are a dozen people in New York because I'm like, this thing's great. You know, I'm like real time. I you know, when it. we were there, we would even every other day have to check our pulse ox, which, you know, you can get a pulse ox for $40 at CVS or Walgreens. Um, and I've got one at home. But, you know, while I was there. You know, every two days, everybody had to check their pulse ox because we were seeing these people that were showing up with, you know, the silent hypoxemia where they were, you know, no other symptoms, just their oxygen levels low. And that was, you know, what they, I mean, and some of these people would walk in with pulse oxes of, you know, 80%, 70, 75%, you know, really low. And they're not even having the air hunger and everything like you would expect. Um, that is really interesting. That's what I've heard. And that's a good reason to have a pulse ox. I sure have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, here and at the of course all the offices but um it you know we've learned a lot about this thing we still don't know everything but i think we've come a long way i'm optimistic that things are kind of going to get back to semi-normal i think certain things won't ever get back the same in a good way because people will learn that you need to take care of yourself uh to prevent you getting sick from these things because in america as you know we're an obese country we're very out of shape. As a matter of fact, the reason I formed performance medicine 18 years ago was because after practicing medicine for eight, uh, previous 18 years and doing things the standard way, I realized I wasn't really helping people. People were still getting more obese on more medications, and you know, half of my practice is really dedicated to fight obesity because when you look at the demographics of this coronavirus and almost every other illness that that we see including cancer heart disease diabetes it's obesity mediated and even with this thing if you look at the demographics and on tv the people that are dying of this it seems to me that about 90 percent of them are almost morbidly obese so the lesson in this thing going forward is to start taking care of yourself you know taking the right supplements eat right exercise sleep um do all these things that you should be doing anyway so i hope we learn a lot of lessons from this thing uh this has been an amazing little talk here and i and you know brock i really appreciate you coming on and we appreciate your service to 
going up there and volunteering and, and working with our country. I mean, guys like you are really the heroes of this country. And I hope, you know, I certainly appreciate you, and I know everybody else does too. And just thank you so much for not only coming on here today and talking with me about your experience in New York City. This has been a, just a phenomenal uh, talk and gateway for me to to talk to other people about this and learn. So um, let's let's keep talking, and maybe we'll in a month or so we'll do another one and see where we are because you know we want to prevent this second wave from coming and take some reasonable precautions against it. But um, you know, common sense always trumps over anything else i think and um uh, yeah i agree completely and the only other thing i would add that you know how we're changing as a, as a country and i think something that your patients should should know too is that i mean i think a year ago we all would have not really felt that comfortable using like telehealth services but um you know now i think that's going to be i mean why go to the doctor if they're you know if, if if it can be handled over the phone you know why and you know, I mean, it still should, it needs to be, I mean, the, you need, you have to make your money when you're, you know, if you're doing telehealth services, but um, patients can get high quality care, you know, you know, while they're, while they're looking at you on FaceTime or, or whatever, you know, method that you use. But um, I mean, things like that, I think now start to feel more normal because, you know, if I don't have to go, you know, do if I'm not doing a, a wellness check where you know you need to listen to my heart and lungs and this and that, I, I've got a you know a call for a sore throat or need some recommendations for for, for weight or sleep or or um, you know or, or fatigue or something like that. So I think I think some of these changes are changing in a good way, and um, you know I thought I'd, I'd definitely mention that. Um, but no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and certainly in a month we could talk more and see where things are kind of um, going. Brock, I agree 100%. We've been doing telemedicine for years now, and I think it is the wave of the future. Um, it's more convenient. It's less costly. Um, it doesn't take you out of your home or workplace. A lot of stuff can be treated over the phone. I think a lot of, a lot of things will change with this because docs, as you know, are so paranoid about getting sued or, you know, coding the thing right. You know, medicine has become big business. And it's been run not by the doctors, but it's been run by insurance companies, government, and even sometimes pharmaceutical companies. But anyway, so I like the grassroots thoughts about, you know, how to take care of yourself. As doctors, we're really coaches. You know, we're trying to coach you on learning how to take care of yourself. And that's been our focus at performance medicine for years and i hope it'll continue i know it will continue but uh thank you so much brock and we'll talk in a month or so i look forward to to talking to you personally and just stay safe enjoy your quarantine learn how to play guitar you know learn how to build a deck or you know put a jigsaw puzzle together something like that which i have one right here we've already worked out too um and just remember keep life simple and enjoy yourself and stay healthy thanks a lot brock Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, we will see you guys next time.